my name is Justin Charles. Um, I'm the moderator. Um, we have two wonderful panelists. Uh, we're going to be talking about reparations. Um, I'm going to let them introduce themselves. This is Bianca Cunningham. Hi, I'm Bianca Cunningham. Um, I'm the co-chair of New York City DSA. Um, I also work for an organization called Labor Notes, so I'm really involved in the labor movement. Uh, super happy to be here. My name is Edna Bonhomme. I am currently living in Germany. I'm a historian and postdoctoral fellow at the Max Planck Institute for History of Science. But I'm also a union member, uh, GEV, um, and I'm an organ or also uh, organizing with Frauenstreik, which is the International Women's Strike in Berlin. Okay. Um, so th the way this will this will go is Edna's going to talk a little bit about reparations, uh, a kind of historical overview as well as some context from an international perspective. Uh, Bianca and I are going to talk a little bit about the situation in the United States, more specifically currently a debate within DSA but brought more broadly socialist movement about rep reparations. Um, so I'm going to pass it to Edna and then we're going to try and open it up sooner rather than later so we can kind of get a good discussion going amongst everybody in the room. Um, so Edna. Uh, so first of all, thank you so much for coming to this uh, panel and discussion, especially given how lively this debate is on the U.S. left, but also the international kind of liberal milieu as a po um, as a whole. I think uh, one of the things I'm going to do is a little bit talk about what reparation has meant, particularly around the lines of anti-black racism as well as uh, colonialism, and the extent to which uh, socialist Marxists can think about some of these issues. So first, I want to um, talk a little bit about the meaning of reparations um, in uh, looking at the uh, Oxford English Dictionary, it, it comes from uh, issues around reconciliation or compensation for war damage owed by an aggressor. Given the full meanings and ranges of evocations for this term, uh, it behooves us to think about uh, uh, reparations from a material end as well as uh, the ways in which uh, people have been uh, distraught. So I have several questions that I kind of want to explore. First of them being, what is the relationship between the history of slavery and the ongoing historic struggle for black liberation? Uh, two, what is the history of reparation and how does it relate to and contrast with the moments of, of, of the anti-colonial movements? Uh, what is the relationship between racial oppression and class oppression, uh, exploitation? And what would it take to make restitution for um, a global uh, 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 racist history and how do we think about its relationship to upending uh, um, uh, uh, capitalism? In order to get to this, um, I wanted to start off with a kind of anecdotal uh, situation. Uh, so while I'm not an expert on reparations, I am a descendant of slaves, uh, so I'm not biased insofar that my ancestors were displaced, dispossessed, and renamed uh, as a, um, because of chattel slavery. And it's the, the history to that is specifically tied to Haiti, or what was called Saint-Domingue, or uh, where Arawak uh, people uh, lived before European colonization. And so in thinking about that, um, it relates to a broader situation of 12 million people, as most of the people in this room know, who were um, uh, displaced and brought to the Americas from the 60s to the 19th centuries, 45% uh, of them ending up in the Caribbean. Um, and with Haiti being an exception in which uh, it was the first uh, in 1804 where uh, to be able to liberate itself. Um, at the same time, um, uh, shortly after liberation in 1825, Haiti started paying reparations to France um, in the equivalent of it being $21 billion to compensate French slaveholders um, uh, for their lost property. Um, and so this is 
uh, something to take account of in terms of who has been and what has been able to uh, get some kind of uh, uh, economic reward for uh, uh, property and under uh, a capitalist system. Um, and in thinking about that as well, it's and think we have to think about the ways in which black labor has been exploited and um, tied to uh, the degeneration of black humanity and how it's manifested vis-a-vis -vis draconian policies, violent ways, um, and at the same time, how black rebellion um, has also emerged um, in those very uh, ripe uh, uh, conditions. So the legacy of uh, anti-black racism, um, I would say, still persists, and it is incurred vis-a-vis -vis in the US, of course, through um, everything from the uh, criminal justice system to housing situations, education, uh, even um, the ways in which people are financially um, uh, receiving inequalities. At the same time, um, in the early 20th century, there was a kind of growing movement of people, particularly black socialists, uh, who were part of the African Black Brotherhood and radical socialists such as Hubert Harrison, who tr tried to challenge uh, uh, anti-black racism along a, a class lines. And in one particular poem from 1919 by Anne Louise uh, Strong, black American woman, uh, she made the following remark uh, to tie both class and racism together. Quote, when they keep any worker, man or woman, white, yellow or black, out of a union, they are forcing a worker to be a scab, to be used against them. End quote. Um, this Part of the reason I think it's important to point this out is that this moment in which black people were left out of uh, many of the Burgoning uh, union movements and also socialist parties, they definitely uh, tried to articulate vis-a-vis -vis poetry, vis-a-vis -vis other mechanism, why their place was important in order to challenge the uh, division amongst the working class. Um, Moving to oppression and how it's an ideological tool as, um, as well as a material one, um, I would I'd like to uh, kind of point out uh, the way in which uh, racism operates on the level of uh, compensation and income. So in the United States, um, as of 2006, um, uh, the inc medium income uh, for white families was about 50,000. For black people or black families, it was about 32,000. Um, US black employment um, staggers between, and that's the official one, between 15 to 17%, whereas unofficially less than 10% for the general population. Um, in terms of white median wealth, so not income, that, that is what people are worth based off of their savings, um, how much they make per year. It's about 91,000, and for black people, 6,000 per So, and even beyond that, if one thinks about the intersections of race and gender, for single, um, uh, white women, uh, the median income is 42000 and for our medium uh, wealth is $42,000, and for uh, single black women, $5. Um, so that's just one perspective in terms of the kind of material situation. With respect to housing, which um, uh, again, the 2008 crisis um, has been, has shown how apparent class and race uh, very much intersects, and um, it's, it's, it's it wasn't a new thing in that um, since between the 1930s and 1960s, black people across the United States were cut off from uh, state programs uh, and legitimate home mortgages uh, so that they could be able to live um, in the Burgoyne, um, uh, like suburbs uh, through the Federal Housing Administration. And that very much uh, dovetailed to uh, the kind of urban uh, segregation that persisted and continues to persist uh, today. Um, and this has been documented by uh, sociologist Patrick Sharkley at NYU, uh, where he studied uh, children born between 1955 and 1970, uh, um, uh, were uh, 
of those of children born between 1955 and 1970, only 4% of white children were born in poor households, whereas 62% um, uh, of black um, children uh, were born in um, poor households. So in thinking about this and what the struggle of reparations has meant um, as a, a historically, uh, it's important to recognize several things. The, a, the legacy of slavery. Uh, two, uh, the horrors and the continuations of violent institutions, whether it be Jim Crow uh, 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 segregation or even the kind of um, current iterations of finance capital and how it impacts people. And beyond that, um, reparations wasn't something that began in the recent debates, like in the past like several years or so, um, but very much was part of um, a kind of international discussion through the League of Nations, um, eventually the United Nations, its um, kind of uh, successor, uh, US Congress, of course, and European Union um, today. Uh, so in thinking about these diverse lineages, uh, it's also important to think about uh, who are some of the early advocates. One of them uh, being um, Marcus Garvey, who is part of the Nationalist you know, United Negro Improvement Association. Um, and this was part of a broader pan-African movement uh, during the period in which uh, he and, and others were moving between the US, Jamaica, and the Caribbean, and, and other spaces. Um, and it was during that time in 1919 that the, the Pan-African Congress um, advocated to the League of Nations uh, for an anti-colonial um, uh, um, resolution to protect the natives of Africa. Um, and eventually, with time, uh, some of those uh, black nationalist leaders, such as Audley Moore, who is um, African-American, uh, purported to the UN in the 1950s. Um, and she actually founded, uh, during that time, a committee for reparations for the descendant of slaves. So um, on the one hand, uh, some of these uh, people uh, had a a, somewhat of a narrow idea of what reparations meant um, in terms of not always um, uh, having a kind of uh, specific program or even uh, um, linking what was happening in on the African continent to the Caribbean to the US. Um, but at the same time, what they did want to point out was how can you undo the historical injustice in a way uh, that um, uh, addresses uh, people's everyday and lived experience. So in thinking about the 1980s onwards, uh, there is a different different kind of way in which uh, reparations or ideas or perspectives were uh, outlined, it did become very quite economic. And in one particular report from uh, Yale Law Professor Boris uh, Bitteker, um, he um, estimated that at least as of up to 1973, $34 billion should, uh, uh, should have been what could have been part of reparations uh, for at least black Americans uh, at the time. And this calculation uh, was um, based on the, the capital that people were dispossessed of, or at least that's how he formulated it. There was also, vis-a-vis -vis, uh, the National Coalition for Black Reparations in America, um, a kind of a, a endorsement of um, reparations by the NAACP in 1993. Um, in, um, it was during that time as well, a reparation bill was introduced in the US Congress um, through by uh, John Poniers. It was HR 40. Um, and then a special commission had been proposed as well to, quote, acknowledge the fundamental injustice, cruelty, brutality, and inhumanity of slavery in the United States and the 13 colonies between 1619 and 1865 to establish a commission to examine the institution of slavery. So these uh, discussions, bills, etc., also uh, came with um, uh, through the works of uh, Charles Ogotree, who pointed out um, a per wanted a program for job training, public works that took on racial justice, and also a mission to include um, the um, injustices done to indigenous people as well. 
and today in the Caribbean and reparations movement, it, it's not necessarily mostly only looking to the US, it, it's actually looking towards Europe and part of the coalition in the Caribbean context is that um, they're looking at the underdevelopment in the Caribbean as a direct and lasting legacy of the slave trade um, as well as the genocidal process of indigenous people. Um, outside of that, uh, they're specifically targeting um, uh, uh, the, the idea of you know, them being, or their um, ancestors being considered private property and what that could be calculated as. And so one calculation that was um, purported to the British government was uh, $27 billion should be compensated to people in the Caribbean um, for uh, its reparation situation. And with um, Haiti and Haitians, uh, particularly they want the $21 billion back, at bare minimum. Uh, so that would be, I think that's not a, a high-reaching thing um, in terms of what can be done and what is possible. Um, and so turning towards some recent, in at least 2000s debates, one particular uh, famous, uh, well not famous, but at least well-circulated article by Tanahashi Coates in uh, 2014 was an article in which he highlighted uh, the case for reparations. And for him, it was honed around the, the idea around housing mostly and the housing debate. Um, and there are some, uh, I have some critiques with that article in terms of uh, it not necessarily having a class analysis in the way I want, but what it does do, and I think is often missing on the left, is humanizing the experience of those who are just trying to survive and don't have any other mechanism. And what does it mean for a government that, ha that claims to be a democratic space um, that offers uh, you know, uh, freedom for all, um, having <coughs> millions of people who are dispossessed and um, having uh, very little opportunities long term. And so in thinking about that, um, I, there was at the time, and I, I think you can speak a bit more about this and I'll, I'll stop soonish, uh, the debates between his case for reparations, Bernie and his campaign, and it being construed at the time as, as class reductionist, as well as ongoing uh, debates today, where um, people have argued, um, at least Cedric Johnson in a Jacobin article in 2006 argued that reparations is mostly spearheaded by black elites, um, and that it's not being called by the black majority, and that that call for reparations is taken up on a moral basis. Um, uh, and that one should uh, call for universal, broad-based leftist uh, programs, which in, in, on their own, according to Johnson, uh, would then upend uh, racism. Um, I disagree, because if one is, has to have a sober assessment of the history of racism in the US, it has been historically used to divide workers, um, and that in, in many ways, uh, having that kind of economic, or not just economic, but a basis, uh, but also these programs that were being done and being put into the bills in the US context as well as by Caribbean anti-colonial um, anti leaders, um, that it actually does open up the space for challenging capitalism as a whole. And as one, of, one friend uh, that I have has said recently, it's like if another way in which uh, leftists have said, well, we shouldn't do this because how, how, how is it possible that reparations can happen? We, there's no plan, there's no blueprint. It's like, well, if you can take people to the moon, if you can create electricity, like there are ways in which um, the idea about reparations can um, be thought about or at least um, uh, uh, laid out. And in thinking about some of the anti-capitalist um, reparations uh, uh, advocates, 
some of them have advocated for a redistribution of wealth, um, two housing uh, for people like uh, uh, guaranteed housing for people. So in the U.S. today, there's like 80 million uh, vacant homes according to the U.S. Census, um, and uh, uh, nine um, million people have either had their homes foreclosed upon or uh, are in the process of, of having their homes foreclosed upon. So there's twice as many housing housing available than uh, or uh, vac vacant homes available than people who have been um, uh, displaced uh, currently. The question around suffrage has also been part of the, the question around uh, reparations. So for those who are incarcerated or felons and have been dispossessed of their right to vote, they should just be granted this um, unequivocally. So that um, that, that question uh, disproportionately impacts African Americans. Um, and so this is part of the reparations debate. Um, environmental racism is, is something that could also be incorporated into reparations in terms of thinking about how black communities, um, and not just in the US, but globally, are disproportionately uh, seen as a waste site for air pollution, toxic wastes, and more. Uh, the question around policing and militarization is also part of the reparations kind of demands for some people where uh, targeting the prison industrial complex in a systematic way in policing and how that gets, again, disproportionately applied to black, brown, Arab um, uh, peoples is uh, something that also has to be thought up. And also just education, like where um, free education upon demand, not just for primary, secondary, higher education as well. And hopefully someone can do the work of um, looking at the racialization of the debt, uh, student loan debt in this country and how it is it is absolutely criminal um, that people have tens to, to hundreds of thousand dollars in debt and how that is a class issue if one thinks about people's ability or inability uh, to imagine a future um, beyond uh, a, a, the, 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 their um, kind of uh, economic situation. Um, and so what is it, what will it take to think about these or ending like racism and uh, the kind of continuation of colonialism? I think fighting for or against, uh, or fighting against uh, oppression in a democratic way uh, could be part of that logic um, and really um, taking on and challenging the institutions that continue to profit from it. Uh, we've seen vis-a-vis, -vis, of course, Black Lives Matter kind of uh, the Black Lives Matter movement uh, kind of uh, resurgence of people um, making links between uh, the prison industrial complex and uh, violence against black lives, but it, it needs to also consider the kind of uh, broad class uh, situations that impact people um, from below. And I'll end with one thing, which is to say um, uh, W. B. Du Bois uh, once stated in thinking about you know, how could he challenge uh, anti-black racism that it, it had to be democratic and he, he then um, continued, democracy is a method of doing the impossible. And in thinking about that, um, if we want to um, undo the damage that continues to live with us today, that means uh, demanding the impossible for a unified multiracial um, uh, class upheaval uh, and reparations could be part of that. So thank you. Um, so, I, I'll, I'll, I'll start with an anecdote, I suppose. So, a couple weeks ago, I'm, I'm, I'm getting into a Facebook argument with a, with a fellow DSA member, as, as one does. Um, <laughs> uh, and it's, this was about the 2020 presidential election um, and the various Democratic uh, candidates saying that they are in favor of reparations. Um, as it, you know, somebody posted about this and it was like basically they, they, they linked to like 
Beto O'Rourke saying something. Um, and their comment was, come on, Bernie. Um, now, you know, if you're not in DSA, uh, to contextualize a bit, DSA endorsed Bernie Sanders extremely early um, for his presidential uh, uh, campaign, um, very enthusiastically. Um, but Bernie's uh, position on reparations from the 2016 uh, primary, more or less the same uh, situation now. Um, and there's been a kind of uh, reaction within, uh, amongst some DSA members about, about this. Um, particularly his first, the first town hall that he did, a CNN town hall with, with, with I guess it was with, with Wolf Blitzer. And a question from the crowd was about reparations. And he had a kind of uh, dismissive answer, I would say. Um, which people were not happy about. Um, th that kind of led to some members of the New York City DSA chapter's Afro-Socialist Caucus uh, wrote a letter kind of laying out our kind of dis disappointment um, with what we've seen from, from Sanders related to reparations. Um, Robert. Robert's in the room. Robert was a, was a pretty much the primary author of that, and then a lot of people signed on to it. Um, but the debate back to the Facebook post um, was kind of about you know our organization in 2017 at our national convention. You know we voted on a resolution to form an Afro Socialist Caucus, but also in within that resolution um, to support the BYP 100. You know program, which, which, is, which includes reparations. I feel like there was another resolution that also was about reparations. Um, so there's a kind of, you know, there's, a, there's, 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 there's some contradiction there in that, like, the organization has said, at least in word, that, it's, that, it, that, it's, that it supports reparations. Um, in action, I don't know necessarily what that looks like, and we can get into that, but, um, but then to there's obviously reasons to endorse Sanders, despite the, the reparations question. But um, there's a little bit of discomfort around the kind of, I guess, the willingness to kind of overlook that concern as opposed to others. If, if Bernie had a really bad you know, position about labor, would DSA endorse him? I don't know about that. Um, but. Operations, okay, we'll, 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 we'll look away from that one. Um, but in this, back to the Facebook thread, uh, somebody came into the thread kind of saying, well, the kind of arguments that we, that we heard Edna talk a little bit about, like um, universal social programs um, will, will be what deals with white supremacy. Um, and the need for reparations is, is, is kind of overblown, and it, yeah, it comes from, you know, black elites, um, and it's divisive, and it will make it harder for us to coalesce a broad working class movement, um, and no socialists are actually for reparations. This is just neoliberal hogwash. Um, so I, you know, got angry. <laughs> and I'm not an expert on reparations, like I like know 
what most people know about it from having read some articles, but I was like, I was very, okay, I was like, I gotta, I gotta shut this guy down, so I started furiously Googling things. Um, uh, furiously, typing very hard. Um, and, you know, got some ammunition and came back to this thread and was like, okay, let's not pretend socialists, you know, don't support reparations. Um, and there's, there's, there's plenty of examples of socialists supporting reparations. So, like, don't try and tell me that it's, that it's some, you know, neoliberal, you know, black elite demand. Um, and I think you, you talked about this a bit that, like, fundamentally to, to actually, and we can talk a little bit more about, like, what, the, what reparations might actually look like, but I think to do something on that scale, um, you know, to, to make right the wrong that was done, you know, to, to, to people hundreds of years ago. And all of that, all of the kind of fallout from that would, would be extremely damaging to capitalism. Um, at the same time, socialists who, okay, we're talking about people who want to overturn the economic system that has like run the, the world and has been dominant, we're talking about we want to get rid of that. And we can't then also talk about reparations. Like, our, is, our, is our horizon that limited? We have the imagination to, 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 to overturn this economic system, but not to, to make right a very serious wrong. And in doing so, also very, very badly damage capitalism. To me, that doesn't make any sense. Um, That's the end of my anecdote. Um, <laughs> but I think in, Bianca could talk a bit about this because she's one of the people who, who co-founded the Afro-Socialist Caucus. But now we're kind of in a position where we wrote this article, it got all this press, um, and now there's a reaction to that article. And we're trying within DSA to try and figure out what does it look like for us to, to, to make this demand part of what we're doing as, as an organization. And that's very much like up in the air, but we're working on it. So I guess I'll, I'll let you talk a little bit and we can kind of maybe be in a bit of a dialogue. Sure, sure, thanks for that. Um, yeah, so uh, the Afro-Socialist Caucus, uh, New York City chapter wrote the letter, it was the open letter to Sanders asking for him to, it's really bare bones, asking for him to support um, the Conyers bill, which was HR 40, would it pass? I mean, many people don't know, Conyers has been introducing this bill for 30 years, over and over again, and it, it never uh, gets passed in Congress, and so this is not a new idea. Now, um, you know, other Congress people, Congresswoman uh, Sheila has like picked it up and and, and uh, start, continue to introduce it. But, you know, one thing that's really funny to me is that, you know, at, I'm new to the left and, you know, new to the socialist organization, but one of the things that I've really picked up is this idea of, like, universal demands, right? Demands that, uh, you know, benefit all of us. I think that when you look at the Movement for Black Lives platform and what they are asking for in reparations, those are universal demands. They're saying, we want free college for all, but maybe we could look at student loan forgiveness or debt forgiveness for for, uh, descendants of slaves, which is just taking it an extra step further. They're saying universal basic income plus 
the jobs guarantee with an extra little kickback for descendants of slaves for a specified amount of time. Um, they're saying things like let's change curriculum in schools and disinvest from uh, you know criminal justice institutions and reinvest it into the communities. Those are all arguments that I find socialists would agree with, except for whenever you say reparations, <laughs> then all of a sudden it's like, no, we can't do that, um, which is really funny to me. Um, I think that like the argument of like we don't know what it's going to look like is like really weak. Uh, <laughs> I don't know what uh, eradicating poverty in this country would really look like either. But I'm here, you know, we're all here every day to like try to you know chip at it one one block at a time. And so, uh, you know, there are some like there is some pathways, you know, uh, through legislation, both local and federal, that have been introduced, like ideas that I think that um, just should be, haven't been taken seriously at all. And it's really disappointing to be a part of an organization who also is dismissive um, in those same uh, demands and, and brings in all these kinds of things about black elites. I mean, descendants of slaves are descendants of slaves, period. I mean, I think the real argument that I've heard is that like, you know, to your point, it's like not, I think a lot of the uh, original folks who were looking at reparations in the United States weren't necessarily considering how it was affect affecting people um, abroad outside of the United States. And so there are some, you know, some of the earliest or, you know, some of the even throughout time, uh, the calls for reparations have been like very simply like black American descendants of slaves, which I think is open for some discussion about who would be eligible for that. And I'd be curious to talk more about that. But I think besides that, um, you know, 150 years ago, slavery was abolished. That's my grandma, my great grandmother lived to be 100. That's not even two generations. I mean, to say that it's too far gone, I think it's not um, a good analysis. It's just lazy, to be honest. And it's dismissive. Yeah, I've, uh, so I, I was uh, I was talking with you know some folks who were at the conference yesterday um, at a party last night about reparations, and, and they're they're like you know we're kind of I guess they're reparation skeptical. <laughs> Surprise, they're white, but um, they they were saying you know why. What this is where this is where it gets interesting for me because people raise all kinds of like you know kind of gotchas and they're like okay so if we're to do reparations and we're to try and figure out who's a descendant of a slave does that mean we're going to have to do like like eugenics and like 23andMe but like trying to figure out exactly who's and I'm, and, I'm, and I think the arguments yeah the arguments that I hear about about against it are just so, like, I mean, I've, I kind of said this already, but like, you know, we, we want to we end capitalism, like, and you don't have the imagination to, to think beyond, oh, well, we're going to have to do a genealogy test, and that's, and that's messed up, so let's not do reparations. It's just not, it's a non-starter. Um, I think what the left needs to be doing is 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 not only like making the case for why we should be why reparations are right but also like you know people want to say okay we don't know what it's going to look like i mean and then also people say that we don't know what socialism is going to look like so let's kind of like make it, let's 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 make it let's make an argument for what it's going to look like let's kind of let's make a case for this is how we do it um, 
And this is how we do it in a way that not, is not just um, universal social programs in a kind of lift, you know, rising tide lifts all boats, lift, lift all boats sense, but like um, on top of, like, like Bianca said, like these are the things that are in the Movement for Black Lives platform, but there, there, there are extra bits. And I don't think those extra bits for Descendants of Slaves is, are, are wrong. I think they're, I think they're justified. Um, so did you have something you wanted to say? Yeah? Um, no, I'm, I'm, I'm good. I want to I wanna have a conversation. Well, I was going to bring it outside. Sure, yeah, please, please. Um, so uh, in thinking about Germany, where I live, um, there is an ongoing kind of political movement around decolonizing not just the city, but also um, its uh, direct colonial past on the African continent, mm -hmm. and specifically uh, uh, making amends for uh, the genocide in Namibia of 1905. Um, it came with uh, several things, um, um, everything from, of course, dispossessing people there in Namibia, uh, but as well as collecting the skulls, human remains, of uh, people who fought against the Germans during that period. And those remains um, are currently uh, housed in Berlin um, in parts of the Charité uh, Hospital, the largest public hospital, and they have like a museum element as part of their archives um, and in a way that uh, they, even though the descendants of people in Namibia have asked for uh, the remains so they can have proper memorial practices, uh, they have not been returned. So that's one element in which um, even just like the bodily experiences or uh, like memory has not been able to be preserved by the people who have um, experienced that genocidal process. Outside of, of that, today, I, I don't see these, um, that colonial history as like having stopped and after uh, Germany lost that colony. In fact, a recent documentary showed how that, um, that colonial practice uh, exists today insofar that about over 50% of the land in uh, commercial land in Namibia is owned by German uh, companies. Um, uh, there's entire regions within Namibia in which people are kind of um, uh, how do you enclosed in because they can't cross the private property, um, and it goes it, it's it's. it's it's quite apparent in terms of people not um, being able to ha share the material resources on, on the ground um, and in a way that it, it dovetails with memory, cultural practices, uh, monuments, artifacts, as well as like who gets to move around within the country as a whole. So um, in the US context, it's a different dynamic, but in the, the German Namibia case, uh, it's, uh, it's very clear and continuous. So, so decolonization is a, is a kind of part of... Yeah, so that's the term that people are, yeah. that at least the people that I know are using, yeah. um, and I, it could also be termed as reparations, mm -hmm. but it's, it involves very much the same thing, these mm -hmm. material, uh, social programs, um, the ways in which people were experimented on as well. Uh, so mm -hmm. this is something that relates a little, little bit to my research, at least in North <coughs> African context, where um, to what extent um, are... Are, are there any kind of amends for uh, racialized subjects who were experimented on by North American and Western European scientists? And what is that? What does it look like to um, challenge that research and um, the people who did that work? There's also efforts in the U.S. to do something similar, which is like to find uh, sites of lynchings, um, old uh, plantations, and also um, places uh, where like these schoolhouses um, where slaves used to congregate in order to like make those like mo national monuments and um, really carve out like history 
Um, I remember the United Nations came over and their findings were like they were so distraught with the lack of education around the contributions of blacks in this in, in this you know United States context of society and that it's just not there. It's not there in school curriculum, it's not there in museums. I think there's something like three hundred thousand museums and there's like 30 maybe, um, that are dedicated to African-American uh, anything um, specifically and so uh, or the experience specifically and um, and so there is a like when you, when you what you're talking about is like a effort to reclaim rather uh, some of these like historical type types of um, places as, as history and to say you know as, as part of the acknowledgement in my um, in my in my set in my mind, that's what part of the acknowledgement is is you know carving that piece of history out you know what's just due. Um.